0: Well, I saw a tweet that went out earlier today. It was from a newspaper editor, fellow broadcaster, Gurpreet Singh Sahota. And I think it summarizes what a lot of people are thinking perfectly. He writes, if you can't offer any other help during this crisis of the BC floods, just do one thing. Stop buying groceries in a panic. It's a flood in one area of BC. It is not the end of the world. And attached to that tweet are several photos of empty store shelves, empty coolers in grocery stores, and empty bins. And I think a lot of people well, a lot of people have liked it and retweeted that saying, yes, exactly what he said. My next guest is also talking about that. Brad West is the mayor of Port Coquitlam, and he joins us on the line now. Mayor West, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Are you seeing this happening in Port Coquitlam as well?
1: Unfortunately, yes. I'm, I'm actually pretty disappointed to have to tell you that. Uh, we have seen this at the Costco in Port Coquitlam, at a number of the grocery stores. Uh, you know, you, you just nailed it. We are being asked to do something so minor the only thing that we're being asked to do, those of us who are fortunate enough to be in a community that came through this event intact, all we're being asked to do is to be <laughs> normal <laughs> to to do what we would normally do, to not you know lose our minds and start hoarding and panic buying. And it's just it's so disappointing that uh, for I think a very small number of people, uh, that they, they aren't able to do that. They aren't able to think of others and what they're going through right now. And they're only thinking of themselves uh, and just doing this absolute, absolutely needless hoarding and panic buying. And it's happening in our community. And I am calling it out and I'm telling people, stop it.
0: And I know there have been photos shared as well, uh, looking at them now, as you said, from some of the stores in Porco Quitlam, as well as uh, people lining up and filling up gasoline, concerned about that. What do you think it is? Is it because we we went through similar behavior when the pandemic started? Or or what do you think it is that's feeding this?
1: Yeah, I I think maybe it is that early on in the pandemic, there was that, you know, the, the toilet paper craze. But you know, at the heart of it, there, there's something else here. There's something deeper. You know, th- this just this the selfishness. This, you know, well, I got to make sure that you know uh, that I have all this. Stuff. I mean, there's people who have, you know, more milk and eggs than anyone could possibly hope to consume. It's, I mean, it's going to go bad. It's going to get thrown out. That's the the other sad part of this. But, you know, I, I just okay. This is how I think about it, Jill. Uh, <laughs> We're, what, we were, you know, we're only a a couple days past Remembrance Day. Think about that generation, our grandparents, and what they did, the sacrifices they made, and then, you know, what we're going through right now pales in comparison, and the fact that there's people who use it as license to just go do stuff which is just completely irrational. And, you know, I guess what it is, is when you go through something like this, you see the best in people, which I'm so heartened that we have seen that. And that's the vast, this is the the part that is important. That's the vast majority of us. We've seen the best in people, people volunteering, people sending donations, Uh, You know, in my community, there's been people who have been collecting donations to send, you know, even on on helicopters uh, to give people help who need it. So we've seen the best. And then unfortunately, you also see some of the worst. And that's what I would chalk this hoarding and, and panic buying up to.
0: It it really is sad to see it, especially, well, not especially, but I mean, yesterday on the program, we were talking to a Chilliwack resident who said he understood why we were focusing and everybody was focusing so much on Abbotsford and Sumas Prairie because of the flooding and the damage. But his point was, you know, Chilliwack is cut off as well. But he was also concerned saying the same thing, that stores were running out of food and gas stations were out of gas. And again, it's that not thinking, because in that scenario, they were cut off. It's not like you could just just go to a different community and pick up whatever you needed. Whereas in Port Coquitlam, there's not a concern of running out of food.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, the grocery stores have been crystal clear on this point that they're able to maintain their supplies, but people also have to maintain their normal purchasing habits too. I mean, if everyone just loses it and of course wipes the, the shelf screen, then yeah, we're going to have a challenge. And, and it's, it's, I just think, a slap in the face to the people in communities who are actually going through hell. And it's also, there are people in, in our own community, you know, there's people in our own community who don't have the luxury of being able to roll into the grocery store whenever they want and have the money there to be able to buy the stuff they need. There's people who are on a schedule for buying their groceries and, it, and it's because they live paycheck to paycheck and they got to wait till payday. And so what happens if you wait to payday to be able to go get your groceries to take care of your family, and it's too late, you go there and the shelves are empty because someone else who has the luxury of going at any time and has the means to can go and buy three, four, five, six times what they actually need. So it it hurts a number of people. It hurts people in our own community. And importantly, I I think it's it's just a, a slap in the face to to our fellow citizens, and that's how we have to think of each other, our fellow citizens who are going through hell and need our help.
0: Uh, I think in some scenarios, bigger stores like Costco have put some limits in place, and again, we saw that, unfortunately, that was needed during the beginning of the pandemic as well. So they're bringing in limits, I think, for things like eggs to make sure they don't run out. But do you think, has it gotten to that? Do other stores have to start bringing in limits for staples?
1: Well, it, it seems like it. And what a sad statement that is. You know, <laughs> they have in Porco equivalent. Costco has put limits on things now. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad they've done it um, because it seems to be the only thing that they could have done. And, and you know, others are clearly going to have to do this as well. But again, I mean, it's almost <laughs> the fact that, that that has to happen. You know, there's a deeper issue there. And so, yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. But my goodness, what a what a sad state of affairs that that's where we're at. That that action needs to be taken.
0: Are you concerned that it could lead to uh, tempers flaring? That it could lead to um, interactions that perhaps aren't all that pleasant? Because people get mad when they see other people doing this.
1: They do. I mean, it 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 really it 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 challenges you know, our relationships with one another when you see someone do that. And, and, you know, clearly people have quite a strong, visceral reaction to what they see happening. I mean, certainly on social media you see that. Um, But, yeah, we, you know, we don't want to, you know, have uh, people getting into altercations because that type of thing is going on and they're witnessing and take exception to it and, you know... (laughs) That's not what we should be focusing on right now. you know. Like I said, we've got a lot of people in this province who need our help. And we should be pulling together like a family does and supporting the people in our family who are in desperate situations. Uh, and so, again, the good part of this, if there is anything good, is that the vast majority of us are exactly on that wavelength. And whether we're an active participant in, in trying to either donate or send uh, contributions or goods or or volunteer or whatever it is, or, or if we're just doing our part by not hoarding or panic buying, you know, thank goodness most of us are on that wavelength um, because that's what we need right now.
0: Well, we've been talking a lot about food, food supplies, food security issues, and we talked to the mayor of Port Coquitlam earlier on in the show with a plea for people to stop hoarding, stop going into grocery stores and buying everything on the shelves because doing that is really harmful to other people who need those supplies. And you need not do that because we are not going to run out of food because of the flooding on the Sumas Prairie and in the Fraser Valley. But it does kind of lead to a bigger conversation about food security in general and Tamara Soma is joining us now director of the SFU food systems lab thank you so much for being with us thank you very much for having me I know this is something that you talk about on a a more regular schedule but what are your thoughts on when we do kind of turn and and look at food security but it takes a disaster to get people really looking at that
2: Absolutely. The one thing I would like to say is just, you know, without farmers and farming cities would not exist. And so uh, I really feel for the farmers um and all of the community members suffering. I'm just, you know, a, a drive away from many of these communities, so um, this this really t- hits home very hard. Um, the one thing I will say is that we are precarious, we are vulnerable, and that's because of the need for a better emergency food planning and a food system resiliency plan, and a lot of scholars have been calling out for the need um, to, to to plan better, um, and I think that hopefully we can learn from this tragedy um, and, and
0: prepare. How would we plan better, or what do you think would be, what would even start to 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 get that process going?
2: Absolutely. So um, here in BC, there are various universities with expertise in food and agriculture and many of us work on food system resiliency issues. And we do that by conducting assessments of some of the gaps, um, the gaps in food assets, for example, where uh, where the, uh, there there needs to be more um, investment, infrastructural food investment in uh, the community, such as food storage, processing, cooling facilities. Um, and also, um, it's important to learn from other cities and other places that ha- have actually been thinking about this a lot longer than us and actually have plans in place. One thing that I will say is that here you know, in Baltimore, Maryland, John Hopkins, University. They've been working with the municipality, working with the stakeholders in the agri-food sector to say, um, and also in the urban area to say, you know, if, if there was an emergency, are you prepared? What do we need to do? And so engaging uh, with the stakeholders and coming up with, you know, where are the gaps? Where are we strong? Um, you know, it, it's something that we can start, you know, hopefully soon.
0: When we look at where we get our food from as well, and I know a lot of people like to know where their food comes from, they enjoy that 100 mile diet, knowing if everything is local. But when we look at the reality of that, it's not as though the food created in, in BC, if we look at the food created in the ALR, that does not meet all of our food needs, it doesn't even come close. And we do depend on imports, and we depend on getting food from around the world. Do you think is there an issue with that? Or is that something we need to address? Um,
2: I think we definitely need to strengthen our local food infrastructure that is key for food system resiliency especially because we have heard this time and time again that if borders were closed if borders were disrupted and this could happen for various reasons from pandemic to natural disasters to political issues and and what have you um, most urban centers would only have three days worth of food um, and if you can think about that from an urban context that would mean that you know we would um, see major issues if we were Only reliant on grocery stores. So in this particular case, you know, there are different ways of conducting agriculture, including not so. Definitely support um, the agriculture happening in ALR and everything, and that happens by supporting the food processing infrastructure, the storage. You know, farmers need all of those pieces to function well together. But then also thinking about innovative ways uh, to grow food in the urban context, like vertical agriculture, indoor growing. You know, we need to have all of our plans um, together.
0: Right. Interesting point when you talk about food processing, because even if we go back, we don't have to go back that many years when there was food processing a lot more happening here in BC, but it was then a lot of that was kind of sent out. So the food would be sent to be processed. But that in turn also did bring the price down. So do we need to have that conversation about if you want food that is grown and processed locally, you're going to have to pay more for it?
2: Well, I think the, uh, the cost is in, uh, and the price issue always comes up, and that's it's actually a little more complex. Um, and so I think what happens is we've been, in a way, not valuing food as much and so um, a lot of things can be supported when, you know, when we think about um, supporting local food infrastructure in terms of food processing, that also means bringing in um, support for economic opportunities for people, economic development opportunities. And we do know that we have the stats for farming in Canada, the average age of farmers, 57 uh, farmers. A lot of them are struggling with the actual cost. Like, so the cost of food that we purchase in the store are not necessarily translating into the cost that farmers actually put to produce food, um, so there's a there's a disconnect in that uh, in that in that itself, um, and so this is where we need a larger conversation about what what is needed to make to make this work in the long term.
0: Right, but then there would also be the issue of I, I get what you're saying that the cost mm-hmm. at the store isn't is not reflective of what goes into that food that's that's grown and and the crops that that are here in BC. But then, what about all of the, the people that wouldn't be able to afford the higher prices?
2: Yeah, and that's a question where we, you know, I'm a food security expert, but uh, we also talk about non-food related solutions. So we have issues around rising housing costs. We have issues around, um, you know, people calling out for better minimum wage. And so these are not food related solutions, uh, but actually are solutions that would be needed just to make. So there's a difference between affordable food and people being able to afford food. Do you see the, the kind of, like, there's, there's a difference in that? So right now what, what's happening is that people are not being able to afford food, and that happens for various reasons, and it's not necessarily because the food itself, um, that the, that price is reflected uh, reflective of the value of the, uh, the food production, but rather because of housing issues or um, lack of um, employment or lack of, lack of living wage.
0: Uh, does that make sense a little bit? It does. It does definitely. What about the idea though of of global trade? And we have come to depend on that. And that, the, and that means that you want to go to a store and you want to say buy an avocado and you don't want to pay more than three dollars for it. Maybe you don't want to pay more than two dollars for it or a dollar. We we do depend on global trade and having that 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 choice when it comes Absolutely. to the to the grocery stores and the food that we get.
2: Yeah, and global trade certainly is important, but global trade also has to be combined with sustainability. Um, And so in sustainability, there's actually three components. So there's the economic component, there's the ecological component, and then there's the social component. So if we're getting food um, at at a a real cheap cost, and there's actually a book by Dr. Michael Kellen called the true cost of cheap food, is that there's externalities. So who are being impacted by these externalities? If we get cheap avocado, who's paying for that price? It might be Mexico. It might be the the water being uh, being drained out of Mexico or the labor um, not being paid enough in Mexico. And so global trade is important. It needs to be more just. Um, and that's where the in, in globally UN Sustainable Development Goal number one in terms of no poverty SDG two. There's so many different SDGs and global um, you know goals um, that are that are that's basically saying we we, we need to have a sustain we need to have sustainability, but it also has to be just. It can't just be environmentally friendly or you know it, it it's all connected.
0: All right, well, Tamara Soma, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. I Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great day. We were talking earlier in the program about the announcement, the confirmation that Health Canada has approved the pediatric vaccine, that is the Pfizer vaccine for the age group 5 to 11. Health Minister Adrian Dix urging parents to register if they have children in that age group and saying there will be more details on Tuesday about exactly how that is going to roll out and who will be getting those shots first. But there are... Still, some who are hesitant about the vaccine, specifically for this age group. So, joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Marie Tarrant, Director and Professor at the Faculty of Health and Social Development at UBCO. Dr. Tarrant, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you, Jill the health minister made it very clear and said several times today that this is the right thing to do to get registered. But what do you say when we do see that there are parents who are hesitant about this? Well, I
3: think there are some that are hesitant, but I think the first thing is that there's a lot of pent up demand for this. I think there are a lot of parents that are, uh, you know, very grateful, very relieved that this is finally happening because they've been wanting their younger children vaccinated. So, um, I'm sure there are, um, you know, a substantial proportion of parents who have some concerns. Particularly, we find that the greater concerns is in the younger children. So the younger the age group, then parents have more worries about long-term effects of the vaccine or, um, you know, just the... the Potential uh, side effects of the vaccines in their children, so but we know that the vaccines are very safe um, in all age groups, and so I think you know I think the minister is right, and that we should encourage people to to get vaccinated
0: and what about the the older age group as well because that was one of the questions is that if you 're talking about somebody who is eleven and almost turning twelve there, there is a big difference in the amount when we 're talking about the pediatric Amount of the vaccine compared to an adult dose, and and parents having questions: should they go for the pediatric dose, or if somebody is turning twelve, wait and get the adult dose?
3: Right. Well, I think the the sooner you can get the vaccine, the better. Are you know, eleven year olds are in school, and often they're in schools with a lot of younger and older children. So I think it's important to get them vaccinated as soon as it's available. The issue with the vaccination and age is that um, you know we're we're very used to some medications being based on weight rather than age, and and eleven year olds sometimes are as you know as large as uh, adults or uh, older kids. But the immune system is quite different. The immune system is about maturity, so an eleven year old's immune system could respond differently than a um, you know a thirteen or fourteen year old. And so the the vaccine has the the vaccine manufacturers have looked at. The dose, they want to give the, um, you know, the, the dose that allows the maximum immune response, but then also minimizes side effects. So I think it's, it's a bit different to look at the immune system in younger kids and older kids. And so this dose has been shown to have a very, very
0: robust immune response, but yet less side effects. So I think that should be reassuring to parents. And what would you say then? Because one of the arguments I've seen and read is that kids don't get as sick. We know that they don't get as sick. So is it more about protecting others and getting to that point where there are so many people vaccinated that even though if we're not overly worried about children getting sick, it's the idea of, of protecting others and also protecting the population against further mutations?
3: Yes, that's certainly a major concern right now. The largest group in our population that's not vaccinated are those younger, uh, younger children. You know, and we know particularly with school-age children, they come in contact with a lot of other children, and and they can get COVID, but not really show a lot of symptoms or not be overly sick. But then can transmit it to family members, older, more immunocompromised family members. But the other thing to remember that is even though they usually have mild disease, there is still the possibility that. They They can develop these complications like multi-inflammatory syndrome or even long COVID. So even though they have a mild case of the infection in the short term, they can still get long term uh, consequences from that. So it's important to get them vaccinated both for their own protection, but also for that larger societal protection that you were speaking about.
0: Would you consider this like other vaccinations? Because it does seem like there's a bit of a divide even in some parents that are fine with the other vaccinations that, that we all got and that kids are getting. Mm. but But then there seems to be, if there is going to be hesitancy, it's about this one.
3: Yes. Well, I think that is, as many parents have said, it's about the newness of the vaccine. A lot of people feel that this is a new vaccine. It hasn't been um, around a long time. So we potentially don't know what the long-term side effects are. But I think it's important to remember that actually in Canada, 60 million doses of this vaccine have been administered and worldwide almost 6 billion doses. So we actually do have a fairly good, uh, we really have good knowledge and probably we know much more about this vaccine now than we've known about any of our previous childhood vaccines before we started administering them just because of the nature of the pandemic and the emergency of getting people vaccinated so i would uh, you know reassure parents that we actually do know a lot more about this vaccine than potentially even previous vaccines that we've been introdu- that were introduced
0: yeah, it's, it's an interesting one when you kind of stop and think about that, too, because obviously at some point every vaccine was a new vaccine. Exactly. But, but maybe, and maybe it's the, the technology or the type of vaccine that, that is getting mm-hmm. the attention. Yes, that's
3: another, uh, the mRNA uh, platform for the vaccine, which has also been, um, I think it's new for this vaccine, but this technology has been researched for well over a decade since even the first SARS uh, outbreak in 2003 and then the MERS outbreak. So it's not a new technology, even though it's been um, newly, um, you know, used with this, this vaccine with the COVID, with some of the COVID vaccines. But that, again, is not really a new technology. It's been well researched and and well developed, and in it's um, you know it's been there sort of waiting for a, a good vaccine candidate. So um, the technology, while it seems new, is also not all that new.
0: And the number I think is around 360,000 people in, in this province fall into that age category of the five to eleven. How important is it that that group that we try and get a high number of that group vaccinated?
3: Yeah, I think it's very important, and and I'm very encouraged because in in British Columbia, 85% of our 12 to 17 year olds have had their first dose. About 79% have had two doses. So I'm encouraged that parents are wanting their whole family, you know, to be vaccinated, so both their their the parents and the children are all protected from COVID. And so I think it is very important. And if we could get, um, you know, eventually get rates that are um, similar or even higher than our um, older childhood. The age group that would be that would be great.
0: All right, uh, Dr. Marie Tarrant. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are expecting to get an update on what is happening with the flooding, the building of the levee on the Sumas Prairie, and the very latest on all things flood-related. That's expected around 2 o'clock with the Mayor of Abbotsford, so we will bring that to you live just as soon as it gets underway. In the meantime, there are a lot of questions being asked about one specific group and talking about temporary foreign workers in the Fraser Valley and where they are supposed to go for help, many finding themselves now. not only out of work because of the flooding, but also without a place to live. Uh, Byron Cruz is joining us now. He's a member of the group Sanctuary Health. Byron, thanks so much for being back with us.
4: Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation.
0: How many uh, people do you think are we talking about when it comes to uh, temporary workers who are being impacted by this flooding?
4: I think uh, my estimate at this time is between 650 and 700 workers.
0: And where are they now? Do you know?
4: Uh, it's uh, divided between the Chilliwack and Abbasworth.
0: And what makes the scenario here, when we're talking about temporary workers, what is making it more difficult?
4: Uh, what uh, made difficult was since the beginning, because the uh, evacuation orders are all in English. Then when the RCMP and the fire department came to, the, to their homes at the farms, Uh, They just uh, asked them to leave the farm, and they didn't know exactly what was happening. And then, uh, yeah, some of them were lost on the way to the shelter because they were not giving any clear directions where to go. And fortunately, through uh, the communication with uh, the consulate, it was possible to manage a way to find uh, uh, also shelter in other farms. Then there are people who are sheltering other farms. There are people who found the shelter uh, that was set up by the city of uh, Chilliwack and others that were um, uh, located uh, or relocated into the uh, trade uh, near the
0: Aguas for Airport. And w- where are the workers from?
4: Uh, workers are from uh, mainly from Jamaica, Guatemala, Mexico, the Philippines. And we are trying to find out uh, where the uh, Vietnamese workers are because there are several, several farms with Vietnamese workers, but we haven't seen them in the shelters.
0: And so is one of the concerns, I understand there are many, but is one of the concerns too that, that because of a communication breakdown or, or such that we could lose track or people won't know where to go or won't find where to go to get the help they need?
4: Yes, that's right. One is the communication piece. And the other is the, the fact that migrant workers don't have uh, local phone numbers because they're very expensive. Then they rely on uh, WhatsApp, and WhatsApp is mainly through the use of Internet. Then slowly, slowly, we are uh, bringing the networks back through uh, uh, the WhatsApp, and they are reporting us uh, that they are concerned right now. I think during the first two days, their high spirit was present because they said, okay, let's be safe. And then most of them are in safe places right now, and in the in the shelters they, they are they are they are getting food. They are getting good treatment at the shelters. We are concerned about others who are not in shelters, but uh, uh, they don't have food. Then in in the last two da- nights we have been visiting the ones who are not in shelters, bringing food to them because. Uh, it's difficult for them to go out and the, there is no food in the, in the stores anyways. It's like difficult to to have that. Then we are working in coordination with the non for profit Watari and calza aid and we are bringing food to the different uh, farms and places where uh, there are workers who have been able to work.
0: And is there a concern as well, and this is a, a disaster, it's a, a weather disaster, but is there a concern that if somebody's here as a temporary worker, their permit to be in Canada is tied to the work, and if that work goes away, do, do they then get sent back?
4: Yes, there is a big concern about that because there are farms that were greatly affected. Then the possibility of, of uh of continuing having workers is limited. Then we are concerned about that. The workers are concerned. And also uh, there's uh, fears right now about that, but also after a week without income, the families back in Guatemala, Mexico, are, are waiting for money that, that the migrant workers sent, and uh, they are not going to get it next this week. Then... Um, also, what's happening is that despite that the migrant workers pay for EI, in each check there are deductions from EI, they are not entitled to get uh, employment insurance.
0: Because they're here as temporary foreign workers?
4: Yes, because as temporary foreign workers, they have closed working permits, means that they only can work for one specific employer. And when you apply for employment insurance, they require that you have like an open work permit and also that you are actively work uh, looking for a work. Then this is a limitation for the migrant workers because uh, the tight work, the tied, um, the close uh, working permit allows them to work only with one employer. They cannot look for another employee because they don't have
0: authorization for that. Uh, so what are you hoping to do, or what? how can people help if they want to? Because it sounds like we've got a scenario where there are hundreds of workers who, while this gets figured out, aren't going to be making money, not only money that they might send home, but they're not going to be not making many. money and and having money for groceries and, and the, uh, the things that they need here. Uh, what, what can be done, or what are you hoping to do to help people through this?
4: I think we are hoping that the that uh, people can call the ministry of uh, of, uh, labor and the ministry of agriculture and i think they need to monitor more the situation at the farms the contract says that uh, they have to uh, the employer have to pay 40 hours um, as a minimum per week and then hopefully hopefully they do that and uh, but we know we know that uh, they have to have some contingency plan in terms of this. Um, it's, it's something that we are learning right now. But we also need to know that in case the employer doesn't pay that, uh, can the federal government make a flexible crisis situation or emergency EI for the agricultural workers to be uh, accessible for them, right? This is important. At the same time, we do have a campaign in the Myron Rights Network uh, Facebook where we are raising raising funding. We will be providing some prepaid uh, credit cards to the workers where they can uh, buy because many of them lost their belongings in the flooding. Uh, Fortunately, most of them were able to get their passports before leaving to the shelters, but some of them lost everything. Then we are going to provide some minimum support for them, but uh, we will.
0: All right. Well, Byron, we will check back with you, uh, I'm sure. But thanks so much for bringing us up to date on this today.
4: Uh, Thank you very much. And we are... uh... Uh, appreciating also the support of other, the industry, the dairy industry is reaching out because they are also interested in to support the migrant workers at this time.
0: Well, as you heard in the news, we talked about this earlier this week, but as expected, it was confirmed today that Canada is dropping the requirement of a PCR test for people returning home if that trip is less than 72 hours. So what does that mean for the people of Point Roberts? Brian Calder is joining us once again. The president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Good afternoon to you. Hey, Joe. how are you? I'm very well. How about you?
5: Well, better now, having heard that news. <laughs> um, that, As you pointed out before, I mean, we're a population here of a thousand and we get 1.5 million crossings of people per annum prior, obviously, to COVID. And half of those, 750,000 of them, come for a day or less So with that three-day allowance, uh, that'll bring back, hopefully, half of our clientele for our businesses here. So that's uh, overwhelmingly positive for us.
0: So it starts up as of November 30th, so still a few days until this goes into place. Doesn't this mean, though, won't it make things kind of, I, I hesitate to use the word normal, but doesn't this kind of bring things back to how they were before?
5: Not before COVID by any means. No, 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 no. Because arrive can for the homeowners who wish to stay here or the boat people uh, who still have boats in our marina or bring them back to our marina, hopefully, um, who want to stay more than the three days, then they do the arrive can full, you know, the full arrive can and test again and so forth. So that's yet to be resolved, um, we hope, sooner than later. And um, not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I'm curious where the 72 hours came from and not 720 hours, (laughs) which is what I'd like to see. Um, You know, where's the science that says 72 hours is, you know, needed where, you know, 100 hours uh, shouldn't be. Why why not? But I'm not going to look the gift horse in the mouth at this time. Um, and I'm looking towards the future and saying, okay, there's four exclaves along the Canadian border, which a total of about 2,500 people, we're, we're about 1,000 of that 2,500. And we're, we're, are we, are we going to be smart enough and concerned enough and diligent enough to create a plan for those four unique exclaves Uh, In advance of this ever happening again, God forbid, but um, if it ever happens again, we should have a a plan in place to accommodate families that can go back and forth and visit each other, because in our case, for example, half the people here, including me, are dual citizens, both Canadian and American, and we have obviously family, half our families on each side of the border. So we've been locked away from them for 19 months now. Um, that's cruel and unusual punishment. And my, my argument is that we can make that safe for them to visit. And We've had plans, as you've reported here before. Six months ago, we offered to vaccinate Canadians. We offered to rapid test them at the border. We had the money raised. We still have it raised. And the governments on both sides turned us down. I mean, they're just not caring about us uh, to any extent. They've never been here, other than Governor Inslee did come uh, about three months ago. And once he saw it, his attitude changed 180 degrees. Full support of Point Roberts to the president of the United States said, open it now. They've got a pilot project that'll work. And still deaf ears. So... We've got a lot of work to do. We're going to need a three-stage ladder to get out of our economic slump here. Um, But any of this kind of activity is positive to us, and we appreciate it.
0: Right. And I think uh, a lot of people would agree with you and question that idea of the 72 hours and where that came from. But, I mean, it does open it up for people, people that have boats or have properties there to come and check and they don't have to get that test or to do shopping, come and get gas. So that's got to be a welcome relief, even if it's not completely what you were hoping for.
5: Totally agree. Absolutely agree. Yep. Yep.
0: Uh, and so, are you hoping then that there will be an exemption when you talk about the exclaves, or that this is one step and then the next step will be getting rid of the test altogether?
5: Yeah, we're we're actually working on a, a physician paper for next time. Hopefully, it will never have to use it, but we want it in place. That here here's how we could phase if if we ever had a border lockdown. As, as you pointed out before, we've only had one ever and in our history, and that was for one day at 9-11. And uh, this has been the disaster, I mean, at every level, of course, I and mean, not just us. And we empathize uh, for everyone as well, but we've been harder hit than anyone else either. And literally six months ago, if we that plan you read out uh, that we submitted uh, six months ago, um, and, and just fallen on deaf ears. I mean, spend a day here. Send one of your emissaries uh, out of the bureaucracy and take a look at not just us, the other three as well, Campobello, Stuart Hyder, and North Angle, and, and just pay attention to the hum, hum, humane side of it, the humanitarian side. Um, and it can be solved safely. I mean, we're the last ones. We got the best record around as far as our Fire Chief Carlton vaccinations, uh, testing twice a week here. I mean, and we're treated the worst. And it's by omission. It's, it, it's not on purpose. They didn't say, let's pick on the ex-slaves. It's by omission. It's by not looking uh, in any depth whatsoever at us ex-slaves.
0: Do you think, too, would, would it be a better solution... And again, I know a lot of people would like to just get rid of the test altogether and question whether testing on a Saturday to come back on a Monday really does anything. But would it be better also if it was a different test, say the less expensive and the easier antigen test?
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, we've offered to buy the unit and place it at our border and operate it. If the government won't step up either one, uh, we'll, we'll test both ways um, at our little border here. Um, Rab- Abbott Labs rapid test. I mean, the amount they've caught in Canada, of all the testing they've done, is 0.02%. And it's not here. It's not the exclaves contributing to that 0.02%. It's the airports and the major crossings because they've got that kind of volume. All right. And so, so uh, you know, it, it's solvable safely I mean, literally, we, as I repeat, we're the last ones that want anything to do with COVID other than keep it under control and away from us.
0: Well, Brian, we'll leave it there for today, but uh, glad to hear that at least some, some what of a solution has been found or some positive news. Uh, let's leave it there, but we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure.
5: Absolutely, and appreciate this, the support for Point Roberts. Thank you.